Hey out there, you've found your way to, or possibly back to, the Student-Centered Science Teacher Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Carosis, the author of Interactive Science Lessons and Digital Interactive Notebooks in a store called Lab in Every Lesson on the educational marketplace Teachers Pay Teachers, otherwise known as TPT. Although, I do want you loyal followers to know that I'm working on duplicating my store on my own website to provide a more friendly customer experience. TPT is great, and I love it, but the nature of my products would really benefit from a few extra levels of filtering and sorting and that type of thing. So be on the lookout for that. And one more update before we get started today on our second discussion in a series on the visible learning text, I'm working on a great free resource for you all. It's called Five Elements of an Effective Interactive Science Lesson, and it lays out the lab in every lesson formula. Basically, the composition of all the lessons I've prepared and posted for sale in my store. It'll be especially helpful, I hope, to those of you looking to DIY your way through lesson planning for student-centered learning, or for those of you who don't teach physical science or chemistry. Be sure to tune in next week for the details on how to download that free resource. Now, on to visible learning. In our tour through the text, Visible Learning, What Works Best to Optimize Student Learning?, We're actually considering today the effectiveness of various instructional strategies and something John Hattie and the authors refer to as effect size. Now, remember that part of what turned me on to this text was originally the proclamation the author makes early in the text that, quote, a lot of things work in the classroom. That was something I was hanging on back then because I needed to know what worked. Just the very title of this text enticed me, right? Here it comes out of the gate and says a lot of things work. And I felt validated in that (laughs) for sure. But as we discussed last week, only some strategies actually increase the likelihood that students will learn a year's worth of content and experience a year's worth of thinking skills in a year's worth of school time. In the last episode, we talked about that speedometer image that the authors present in the text to demonstrate that our instructional decisions can have negative influences or very little influence on our students, or they can have big influences, meaningful influences. The numerical data aspect of that speedometer comes from the concept of effect size. The authors define effect size as, quote, the magnitude or size of a given effect. They also, quote, it helps readers, that's us, understand the impact in more measurable terms. They also refer to this data as, quote, a return on investment for a particular approach. Through his 1,400 meta-analyses of 80,000 studies and 300 million students, Hattie determined that an effect size equal to 0.4 represents one year worth of learning. 
So instructional strategies we employ in the classroom that are greater than 0.4 produce even greater learning gains. And those that are less than 0.4 have much less impact. Now, I'm discussing this today because when I read it, it had a huge impact on me. I had always hoped to be a teacher that provided the opportunity for students to be challenged. Growing up, I was drawn to these teachers. They were my favorite. Don't get me wrong. I thoroughly enjoyed the teacher who played Pink Floyd's The Wall between classes and took on various personalities to keep the energy up throughout class. I also loved the teachers who smiled ear to ear, the ones you could count on to bring you joy each and every day. But I wanted to do my very best in those classes led by teachers who meant business. They were nice, and you know they all meant well, but they didn't smile too often. Looking back, I'd liken them to many college basketball coaches you might see on the sidelines of a game. When they aren't yelling, they're watching intently. So serious. They never look like the cheerleaders. They don't give off that uber positive, everything is rosy vibe. Instead, they look like even if the team wins, they're probably going to get a lengthy lecture about everything they did wrong at the end of the game. Being naturally drawn to this type of provocation as a student, I think I've naturally gravitated to that in my own intentions as I've planned out my instruction and the type of teacher I wanted to be. But my first and only teaching experience has been in the virtual classroom. And as you may now know, There isn't a great deal of flexibility in those classrooms. And while I haven't had to contend much with behavior management with regard to antics, I have had to largely concern myself with ensuring as many students are engaged for as long as possible. As a beginning teacher, I tried to accomplish this by ensuring I asked enough formative assessment questions about the lesson content and cold called on as many students as possible. This was largely what our administration and coaches had recommended too, so it's not like I was a slacker. There are no documented best practices for online learning, and we're working out out as we go, you know? Then, as the bureaucracy goes in public school systems, we have annual evaluations to satisfy. When I first started working at my school, the management was absolutely horrible. The evaluations were incredibly arbitrary and ever-changing, or so it seemed, anyway. But who doesn't want a good evaluation, right? (laughs) Have I mentioned that my spirit seeks out excellence? Getting a bad evaluation just because I didn't comply with the instructional recommendations of my principals and coaches wasn't something I was interested in. Even if those recommendations didn't jive with my own authenticity and principles as an educator. And these are just some of the excuses, I mean reasons, I can give for why I became largely a lecture-based teacher. Your reasons, if you've also found yourself mostly talking to your students instead of with them, might be the same or different. But the past is behind us, right? 
This podcast is about turning over a new leaf. The table on page 18 of the text lists 33 different instructional strategies and their effect sizes calculated by Hattie. 33 instructional strategies! Reading this list was an eye-opener for me if there ever was one. I thought, I can do these things in my virtual classroom. They don't require students to be in person or use any special tools or manipulatives. Why didn't my certification program tell me about these? And as an aside, I just have to say, that goes for pretty much every type of lesson plan or strategy currently out there. I think my school has provided me with some great opportunities for professional development, but they never introduced me to different approaches to leading my classroom. Just recently, I was reading about the 5E method and considering how it compares to my lab in every lesson method. But it's taken me 11 years to encounter the 5E approach. I digress. Back to Hattie's list. His list doesn't contain those cute, trendy, acronym-based lessons or tasks like 5E, inquiry learning, project-based learning, TDA, CER, race, etc. This list is full of nouns. Actual tasks we can expect our students to complete during our time with them. And best of all, none of the items in this list have an effect size less than one year worth of learning, that incredibly important number, 0.4. At the time I originally reviewed this list, I was using imagery with an effect size of 0.45, note-taking with an effect size of 0.5, direct instruction with an effect size of 0.6, questioning with an effect size of 0.48, and maybe some mnemonics with an effect size of 0.76. Chemistry, my content area, is a naturally cumulative course, so there was probably some unintentional leveraging prior knowledge that happened with an effect size of 0.65 going on in my classroom also. And in defense of those instructional strategies I used at the time, the authors of this text don't look down upon them. You'll often hear me kind of poo-poo lecture and note-taking. You might infer that I consider lecture and direct instruction to be one and the same, because I don't do a great job of separating them in my own mind on the regular. But the authors note that direct instruction involves, quote, the teacher deciding on learning intentions and success criteria, making them transparent to students, demonstrating them by modeling, evaluating if they understand what they've been told by checking for understanding, and retelling them what they have been told by tying it all together with closure. Now, if you're doing all that, you're still awesome. I had some key pieces missing from that detailed list. Namely, I was sharing standards and following standards, but I wasn't really making my expectations crystal clear for my students. I didn't realize that was so important. The effect size on teacher 
clarity is 0.75. The effect size of teacher expectations, 0.4. And the effect size of student expectations of themselves, 1.44. Strategies with an effect size as high as 1.44 constitutes, according to these authors, more than three years worth of learning. As this is a podcast about not just my experiences and my methodology, but student-centered learning in science as a whole, folks. Teacher clarity, teacher expectations, and student expectations of self are the foundations of student-centered learning. One of the greatest outcomes from my switch to this style of learning in my classroom has been that shift from students seeking answers, seeking to answer questions for me and take notes for me, to having them complete activities for themselves to construct their own ideas about what they observe. In doing this, it's my experience that students do recognize the need to push themselves, and that I've designed their learning to be that way. I've seen their pride and satisfaction when they succeed, and they identify their weaknesses when they don't quite get it. You know, when we go over it together as a group afterward. There's a measure of self-compassion and grace that is born in their learning this growth mindset from trial and error with a teacher supporting and nurturing that development throughout each and every lesson. I'm not going to go through the remainder of this list of instructional strategies other than to note that while I incorporated between five and ten of them before my switch to student-centered learning, I am pleased to report that I now incorporate nearly all of them on the list. And that incorporation has been unintentional. I mean to say that I didn't use this list and purposefully include these strategies other than to bear in mind those that I've already highlighted for you. The critical importance of our expectations and clarity in defining and presenting them as well as planting the seed to enhance students' expectations of themselves. When planning a lesson, I focused on those goals and these other instructional strategies, like creating a vocabulary program, incorporating literacy for them to synthesize information from multiple texts, integrating prior knowledge, not just mentioning it, and identifying similarities and differences. These just fell into place as they complemented a given concept-based task. If you've purchased this text and you're following along with my account of it in this podcast, you'll notice that I didn't share anything about the fact that this list of 33 instructional strategies is grouped into different levels of the visible learning taxonomy. Visible learning as a taxonomy, includes surface learning, deep learning, and transfer learning. Remember, 
Visible learning is a taxonomy similar to Bloom and Webb's depth of knowledge. In this taxonomy, surface learning is introductory. Deep learning, as you would expect, is more relational among various aspects of the surface learned content. And transfer learning applies learning to other situations, objects, or circumstances. I haven't personally delved into the nuances of each of these levels or tried to define my instruction according to them. Perhaps that's a flaw in my approach because I do believe the author's assignment of these effect sizes depends upon what phase of learning the students were introduced to them or asked to execute them in the research phase of developing the taxonomy. I might revisit the taxonomy someday, but when you're trying something new, it's important to take baby steps. When we overreach, or maybe just me, when I overreach, it becomes so much easier to give up. So take that with you today. If you're getting excited about this, revel in it, but temper it. Give yourself time and grace to move through each phase of making a big change. Play the long game and it'll pay off. After about a semester worth of using student-centered, the student-centered learning approach, I realized the critical importance of real-time teacher feedback. It's listed with an effect size of 1.13. Nearly three years worth of learning packed into that very practical and very personal inclusion into regular instruction. Allowing myself the opportunity to observe students and their work closely enough to provide meaningful real-time feedback uncovered a whole new mess I had to contend with in my planning for student-centered learning. That is the need to differentiate. The authors of Visible Learning provide such an easy-to-understand approach to differentiation hands down the most clearly articulated and easy-to-implement approach I've ever encountered. I'll chat about that with you in next week's episode. Until then, remember, you can respond to the contents of this episode, connect with me directly, and with other teachers who have similar instructional goals of making the switch to student-centered learning in the Lab in Every Lesson community. It's completely free and Facebook-esque, so you can share to your heart's content. Find us at community.labineverylesson.com. I hope to see you there.